science is really great. It's also a fun activity for a date. Yeah. I, Thank you for... <laughs> I couldn't figure out where to land on that one. <laughs> Thank you for tuning into Hannah and Eric Go Birding, a podcast by birders for birders. I'm Hannah and he's Eric. And we created this podcast to share our adventures, sometimes misadventures, and opinions that we have on birding topics. We are definitely not experts in anything that we discuss that might be controversial. We want you to remember there are our own opinions and they might be different from yours. Oh my gosh, so much bird news. So much just news news. Ugh, yeah. So we're going to just say the say the word, but not really mention it a lot further, but yeah. COVID-19. Yes, lots of, lots of things. You guys know. It's all over the news. We don't need to go into it. Yeah, let's stay happy with birds, sort yes. of. So another update. So the women's women's the women in step, um, the birding competition Israel that I was a part of. You know that team uh, for the champions of the flyway. You know I think in our last episode we announced that, that whole thing was being modified yes. to fit local and national standards. Be- because of the COVID yeah. news that's going on, that's kind of overtaking the news uh, cycle. So, I know, like, there's so many people that are traveling in for it and just, like, super devastated about the whole turn of events. I mean, of course, like, worldwide, like, everything. Um, not to downplay any of that, but, yeah, it was just super de- frustrating and depressing. Um, for everyone around everything, about everything. Yeah, so, just about this trip, you know. So, um... We decided, the the team that I'm on, the Women in Step, we decided to turn this into a global women's big day. Yeah. With still having a focus on the Champions of the Flyway and, you know, all the um, fundraising and everything for the Step Eagle, but invite all women around the world to be part of our team. So I think right now we have like 45 women signed up to be a part of the team and I've created a a map on our website. So if you go to gobirdingpodcast.com. And um, on the women section of the website, I created a Global Women Big Day page on that. And so that has the map of all the people that have um, registered their locations for the event, as well as additional information about it. So if you would like to participate, we'd love to have you on the team. All it involves is birding on March 31st for any amount of time from anywhere in the world. Um, So if that means like from your balcony for five minutes like that's perfect just submit the ebird list to the women in step or if you can you know go out all day at your local park it's really variable but all you got to do make an ebird list on march 31st and submit it to the women in step or share it to them so i hope you'll participate and it would be great to have you know a bunch of women on the team so we can all stand in solidarity for this yeah well and and there's going to be significant and who knows, we're, we're recording this on the 24th, so there might be even more restrictions on uh, what people can and can't do by the time we get to the 31st. But yeah. in, in whatever level you can go out and bird, if, if, like Hannah said, if all it is is from your back balcony, like from our from our back balcony, hopefully by the 31st, the puffins will be back and we'll <laughs> be able to see puffins from the back balcony. But we'll see. It might just be like song sparrows it, and house sparrows. Ha- song sparrows, house sparrows, common murs. It, <laughs> it might it might be really simple, but but we'll, we'll, we'll do whatever we can with our uh, travel restrictions we have here. And we hope everyone, all, all the women that have signed up around the, around the world so far and that have yet to sign up that are going to sign up, 
um, will do what they can to stand in solidarity and bird and yeah. see see how much you can see. Yeah. Um, so there was that. And then mm-hmm. also the listenership winner for this last episode, the San Diego Bird Festival, um, surprisingly was Rod... I don't know. Rochester, New York. Is it Rochester? Because it like, doesn't have a D in it. I don't... It's not Ro- Rodchester. It's Rochester. That's how I say it. Rochester. But it's not R-A-W. No, it's R-O-C-H. Rochester. That... Okay. <laughs> I was like, cor- correct us if we're wrong. I was worried about saying that one, so I'm glad you just shouted it out. <laughs> Shout it Because I was like, I think it's Rochester, but Rochester? Rochester. I don't know. I don't know. But second um, was a tie between Portland, Seattle, Austin, and Warrington. Warrington. Woo! Right up the street. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you all for listening. And as always, if you want us to say your weird town name, get everybody in that town to listen. <laughs> And Rochester's not that weird. It's 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 a normal town. I know, but like, (laughs) I guess I just didn't think that that's how you spelt it. Spelled it. Spelt it? Yeah. You know, like, wheat. Spelt. (laughs) I was was thinking like like little tiny fish, like smelt. No. No? No. That's smolt, isn't it? (laughs) I'm just wrong on everything. Whatever. We've had a long day. Yeah. (laughs) Which brings us to the beer. We're drinking yeah. tonight. So I have a fantastic beer out of Portland. It's called Eclipt. The brewery is called Ecliptic Brewing. And um, they have created this. Uh, it's a guava blonde ale, which like I was kind of afraid of because like I don't typically do guava. But I just picked it up, you know, last second thinking about it. And then it's called Flamingo Planet, <laughs> <laughs> which sounds like a wonderful smelly place. A wonderful, smelly place. So it's actually a great beer. Um, just a like tidbit of fruity, not super fruity, but yeah, Blondale. It's great. Yeah, and I'm drinking um, a double IPA from Ordnance Brewing called their EOD uh, Double IPA. It's it's pretty good. It's very very hoppy. It's above eighty IBUs, so it's. Does it have a, a feather on the front of it? Where. Isn't, oh, that looked like a peacock feather or something no, no, like the eye like, of a peacock on it. No, it's a it's a pint glass with a uh, water tower. But and come then, on, and then some wheat and. But come on, kind of looks like else. a peacock feather, like the silhouette. I mean, I guess if you look at it, like kind the of eye. cross-eyed a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just that. Creative. Anyway, anyways, it's a um, it's a it's a really good beer. Um, farm farmer owned brewery, so it's uh, like it's a very a very small craft brewery that uh, makes this. From from all I understand from reading everything that the can has to tell me, <laughs> <laughs> it's a good beer. I like it. Um, yeah. So thank you to those breweries. Um, and also we want to give a, th- a thank you to a couple of our listeners who have checked in on us after you know all this. I know we said we wouldn't like talk about COVID nineteen. We don't want to talk about it the whole time because birds are happy. But we really want to give a shout out to Klaus in Canada and Karen in Seattle who sent us messages and checked on us. And also Jane um, from uh, the Northeast. She sent us an email about her trip to Florida, which we'll talk about in a sec. But, you know, it just really meant a lot to, to me yeah. that, that these guys checked in on us about the hotel. Because, as you can imagine, we had to close the hotel to guests, which is... The whole city closed all the hotels in the city. So. The city actually evacuated tourists. So tourists yeah. are not allowed to be in Cannon Beach right now. So that's crazy. Um, it's weird to be on the beach yesterday with the weather so nice and nobody around. It was 
Very eerie. It's necessary given what happened, but eerie. Yeah, so thank you guys for checking in on us. And please, um, we'll try to pay it forward to, to some folks to check on them because it really meant a lot, you know, oh, yeah. that, to hear that people that we've never met and only communicated with online. Well, Karen, we've met her. But, you know, that they would drop us a line and say, hey, I'm thinking of you. That that really meant a lot. Yeah. And then also we had an email from Jane who um, we've communicated with a lot in the past. She was going to Florida for a trip. It was either between Florida or San Diego to see us. And she <laughs> <laughs> she made the smart decision and went to, to Florida. To stay away from us. <laughs> smart decision. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but anyways, she had a great trip in Florida and actually used a lot of our recommendations, which was cool. Yeah. And she still had a good time. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, I guess, something. <laughs> she particularly liked going to Robert is Here, which I, like, dream about their milkshakes, man. They're really, so good. Really so good milkshakes. Thick. Yeah. And also and the Southern Mills Purple Martin House. Yeah, and so many just random, like, fruits. Like, every possible fruit you can imagine. You just... know, an avocado is the size of your head. Yeah. It's, a, it's have, an interesting place. De- definitely a... some place to stop and stop at. I'm pretty sure we talked about it in a oh, previous episode. at least once, yeah. When we lived in Florida. But she also went to the Orlando Wetlands Park, which is a fantastic location. We have um, one of our episodes is about that, too. So glad you had a good time and glad we could help. Yeah. So, on to a more serious note, we... We had some reviews, um, and I think in all uh, transparency, we continue reading all of our reviews. So we received a two-star review. It's a, it's a little bit lower than we would like, but we want constructive criticism, and we want uh, people to talk to us. So <laughs> I'm good. desperate for any attention. Any attention. So um, I'm going to go ahead and read this, uh, this review that was from uh, um, KT Bird Home. Just, I, I think it's a E.T. bird home, E.T. phone home reference. I made that. I know. That's connection. What that's, that's what I'm saying. Okay. You, you, you told me. I, I guess I didn't say that. But Hannah, <laughs> Hannah made that connection, and now I'm saying it out loud. I'm just but so clever. But K.T. bird home, um, they say, uh, I was so excited for your bird science episode, however, found myself fast forwarding so much just to get some quality content before finally turning it off. The first 20 minutes are about your opinions about beer. If this is your thing cool, then your podcast should be named Beer Beer and Birding or something like that. Then when actually talking about bird science, it was so one-dimensional and primarily opinion-based with very little actual science reporting. Also, if you're reviewing a bird conference, say what was discussed, not, yeah, I thought the presentation was great and his photography was exceptional or something along those lines was stated. What I was expecting is ex-birding conference featured ex-speaker who has background in X and brought up the topic of X. His opinion was X, or his, his opinion was X, report, that's all I ask. No offense, but I'm not interested if you like to speak or not, what happened, what was said, what conclusions were drawn. I'm disappointed as I wish there was a birding podcast out there like that. Well, thank you, KT Bird Home, for the review. We definitely appreciate criticism, and specifically constructive criticism. Um, so, to address a few things that, that you said, um, we had intended on that episode to talk about specifically the highlights, which is what we said in the episode notes, the highlights of the festival, or the festival, the the <laughs> conference that we went the to. The symposium. The symposium, yes, the symposium. Um, and honestly, we could have done an entire episode about pretty much every single one of the presentations, and there was like 50 or 60 presentations there, which was fantastic. 
but our focus wasn't of the presentations for that show. Our, our focus for the show was about the entire adventure. So we discussed the different breweries that we went to. The, we discussed Philomath um, Wetland Park, or Philomath Sewage Ponds. Sewage Ponds. We discussed the hotels that we stayed in. We discussed the conference as a whole. Um, kind of giving a few highlights as to different things that we liked about the conference and then a little bit of birding here and there in between the whole thing. So that, that's kind of the focus of our show in general, as I see it, as I try to see it, Well, and as we try to aim for, I guess. Yeah. And so a lot of these projects, so this was a, um, opportunity for grad students and I guess other students and professionals to mm-hmm. um, present just like they were like five or 15 minute presentations. So there wasn't a whole lot of information about each one. It was kind of like it, they, well, they were giving highlights and then we were giving highlights of their highlights. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> y- you know, they they're doing all of this hard work and they're presenting it. And so we really felt that it's their work. And we didn't want to, we, we definitely wouldn't want to speak for them. And so like Eric said, we could do an episode on each person and we hope to do an episode on a couple of them because their work was really fascinating. Not that not all of them were fascinating. Um, but this is their, their personal work and, um, it's likely going to be written up in scientific journals and that would be the best place to get those kind of details that you want. We're a podcast. I mean, technically we're kind of a travel podcast, travel and hobby. Yeah. Um, so not really scientific, uh, even though we, we do dabble a little bit in science. Sometimes we talk about like the American, um, the AOS changes yeah. and stuff like that. We'll, we'll, we'll dabble a little bit into it, but generally we're talking about the adventure of podcast, uh, of podcasting, of, <laughs> of, of birding. And that, that's basically as, as our three pronged approach that we see it, it's the places that we go, the people that we meet and the birds that we see. And we hold all three of those in e- with equal weight. So we have the places that we went, not only the birding locations, but the restaurants, the public bathrooms. Because that's the, all part everything. of the it's, it's all part of the adventure. The people that we meet, so a lot of the people that we interview, people that we meet along the way. Well, and, and then, the, we talk about a lot of people that we've met, like, on, on trails. On the trails, yeah. And then the birds. I mean, the birds are always there, so they're... That's so they're they're only a third of the total adventure, basically. And we try to do what we can not to mislead anyone because you know we don't want anybody listening to us that doesn't want to listen to us. Um, we're doing this for fun, and you know if you're not having fun listening to us, just shut it off. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's, it's easy. That's fine. Um, and but that, please don't shut us off. Just. <laughs> Just let it play through and then just like walk into the other room or something. Or turn on a different podcast. Um, yeah. And that's why we state when we start that we share adventures and we're not experts because we're not. And we go birding for fun and um, that we want to share the fun of birding. And this was just this symposium was a great opportunity to learn from some folks that are doing some really cool things. Yeah. And um, we wanted to share some of the highlights because you know, because you all should go to the symposium next year or, you know, something <laughs> like it. I mean, there's bird festivals that people go to, but you don't always get to hear like the cool science that people are doing. Yeah. And it's not our place to tell, you know, to, to reiterate what they're doing, but they should be the ones to tell you. Yeah. And so kind of on, on that note of science and getting deep into it, there are a few other podcasts out there 
that might, and speaking directly to you, KT Birdhome, um, that might speak directly to what you're kind of looking at, um, Fledgling Theories is a podcast where they discuss in-depth in different scientific topics in the birding realm. And the ABA podcast, um, they, um, Nate Swick, he talks pretty pretty extensively well, on occasion. Well, he interviews a lot of scientists. Yeah, he interviews a lot of scientists, and and especially when you, we get around to the AOS changes, they have full episodes and multiple episodes devoted specifically to that. So they... He gets more more into the weeds of talking about science than we do, and we kind of created our show because we thought nobody was doing adventures, and well, so we were diverging away from that sort of deep into the science talk. Yeah, and that I mean that's really why we created this because yeah. we just felt like there was a niche that wasn't being met for people who aren't super into the the sciencey stuff. Because I mean I've had jobs where we talked about that and I've, you know, got my master's degree and reading scientific papers all the time. And like, that's great if that's what you like to do, but that frankly bores me after a while. And so I didn't want to create a podcast that would bore me. Yeah. So th thank you for your review, um, KT Birdhome. And I hope that explains why you didn't like that episode. I kind of I imagine know. they wouldn't be listening anymore. Probably not. But I mean, if, if, if they're still there, they're still there. If not, then whatever but thank thank you for your review and um i hope everyone else will continue to review us but oh, actually we did get one more we had review. another one yeah. um it was birding adventures uh i love the podcast i especially enjoy hearing about your birding adventures and sometimes adventures you guys have a special <laughs> fun relationship full-on love and birds and it's wonderful that you share it with us the only suggestion i have for improvement and listen in eric this is for you i know is to turn up the recording volume if possible and that's from gpaw underscore birds yeah, so I will try to turn up the volume, I guess. I don't know. Uh, He'll I, see I, what he can do. I want some more feedback on that one. <laughs> <laughs> if you're having trouble hearing us, let yeah, us know. Ex yeah, absolutely. Let us know if you're having trouble hearing us, and I'll I'll make I'll make adjustments on our end. So that was kind of. I'm a, I will make adjustments for this one, but if I need to more, then I will. So that was kind of uh, our bird minutes. I don't know. <laughs> our, our bird minutes. <laughs> yeah. We just got out of a citywide meeting, so. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking, like, political. Yeah, council meeting. Council. That's, that's, that's the meeting notes from last. So we have a fun interview for you guys lined up. Um, it's Allison, who works with the California Academy of Sciences. Yeah. Um, who, I think she mentions it, but she is a nudibranch lover. And <laughs> she is. <laughs> <laughs> and she's also a lot of fun to follow on uh, Twitter because she posts so many cool tide pool pictures. But anyways. It, it makes me jealous that we live... Like, less than a half a mile away from Haystack Rock, <laughs> and I never go down and take pictures of the tide pools. And I know, and she's at tide pools, like, every day. I'm, I, f I feel like a, like a dummy. Like, why am I not, like... What are like, you doing with like your Like, low, low tide today was at, like, 6 o'clock. Sunset wasn't until, like, 7.30, so I had I had an hour and a half. I could have been taking pictures of stuff in tide pools. <sighs> or at least Or at least enjoying the tide pools, but I wasn't. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe. <laughs> um, so anyways, uh, Allison was fan is fantastic. Um, we really learned a lot from her and really 
learned a lot more about the City Nature Challenge and how that whole program runs and the purpose of it and everything, as well as iNaturalist. Um, so this one, this episode is definitely more about community science and citizen science and how you can be involved. And we did interview her in October, so... Um, keep that in mind. Yeah, keep that in mind <laughs> as she's talking about some of these different things, because I think it was a lot about like how it went down last year. It, yeah, so there, there's there's a lot about what happened last year, and there's also um, no mention of COVID-19 whatsoever through the entire interview. So And we did reach out to her um, about... COVID-19 and how that's impacting the City Nature Challenge, and she gave us kind of a statement that we'll we'll get to after the interview. Um, so just keep all that in mind, and, um, and enjoy listening listen to, to Allison. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Allison, for taking some time out of your day. I know it's a weekend, and I'm sure you have lots of other things to do, but we were so excited that you did have some time that you could talk with us. Um, so you're the Citizen Science Co-Director with the California Academy of Science, right? I am, correct? yeah. Awesome. Can you tell us about yourself and maybe about your position and how that fits in? Yeah, yeah. So I grew up here in the Bay Area, um, over in the East Bay, um, and have, you know, basically lived in California almost all my life, except when I went to college over in Pennsylvania, but then came back and did grad school and <laughs> Humboldt and did some work down in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, but yeah, after grad school, you know, I was looking for a job. I had, I, marine biology is my background. And so, but I had spent also a bunch of time doing uh, informal science education between my undergraduate and graduate degrees. And so when I was looking for a job after grad school, you know, I was like thinking about marine labs or, you know, places that do like aquariums, places that do marine education. And it just so happened that the Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary was looking for someone to run I mean, they didn't call it citizen science at the time, but to run their citizen science program, mm. which basically taught high school students how to do intertidal monitoring on sandy wow. beaches and rocky shores. And huh. so they were really looking for somebody who had a science background, who could analyze the data yeah. and, you know, really understand the scientific rigor behind it, but who could also teach high school students and, like, be engaging <laughs> and, you know, get them really excited about that sort of work. And so it just so happened that my background aligned pretty well for that position. Yeah. Uh, so I did that for two years at the Greater Farallons and then... The Academy back in 2011 decided to rethink their citizen science program. And so they were actually, for the first time ever, hiring someone that actually had citizen science in their title. Hmm. So huh. at that point, I applied for the job at the Academy um, and got it, luckily. Yeah. And I've been at the Academy ever since. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> right right place, right time. Yeah, right it education. worked out great. <laughs> yeah, so um, we usually want to ask people about like an adventure they've been on kind of the Break the ice. Sometimes we do it at the end, but we, we kind of put it all over the place. Yeah. But have, well, have we, you? We like adventuring. Oh, and we love adventuring. A lot of our, you know, we're we're trying to not facilitate. We're trying to encourage people to get out and adventure, maybe like their local area or you know somewhere else in the world. Uh-huh. So that's yeah. The so on that. um, have you been on a recent adventure? Like I could, have. like an eye naturalist or a birding or like. So this this was with work, but mm-hmm. it was definitely an adventure, and I took a little bit, you know, we took a little it's, bit of time. It's an adventure you're paid to do. Exactly, which is actually great. <laughs> Nothing better than that. It's better. Um, so uh, myself and my co-director, and then also the woman that um, is my kind of, my colleague, the woman who helps uh, run the City Nature Challenge with me down in L.A., mm-hmm. Leela Higgins, um, we all went to the Galapagos. Oh, wow. At the end of January as part of a kind of an academy expedition. Yeah. But we were there specifically to run the first ever Galapagos Bio Blitz. No way. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is so awesome. <laughs> so we were, um, 
unlike a lot of people who go to the Galapagos who are on boats and they're traveling to all the different islands, we were actually on Isla Santa Cruz pretty much the whole two weeks that we were there because wow. um, that's where the Charles Darwin Foundation is and that's where their research station is. So we okay. were staying at the research station with our colleagues from the academy. Um, and so we did a lot of work with, with the foundation to kind of talk about future expeditions and, you know, other research that we could be doing together. Yeah. But one of the things they were really interested in was how do they get their residents and visitors to the Galapagos more involved in actually doing the science oh, wow. out there. Um, so they asked us to come down and help them run a BioBlitz, which was great. And <laughs> so awesome. it was like literally the hottest day. We were down there, <laughs> of course. And it was like in the afternoon when we decided to do this BioBlitz. but. Yeah. We had, you know, a whole bunch of the staff and a bunch of local folks and then a bunch of um, tourists who heard about it as well all come down to the station. Mm-hmm. And we just bas- basically bio-blitzed the research station because, yeah. you know, most places in the Galapagos, you have to have a guide to go with you. Mm-hmm. The research station, though, we were allowed to kind of wander together with the staff. Okay. Um, so we bio-blitzed the research station, which was really, really fun. Yeah. Um, you know, and all. Got to explore a little bit of the island itself, which was awesome. Yeah. Did a bunch of snorkeling while I was down there as well. <laughs> got a bioblitz, you know, fish too. Exactly. Yeah, yeah we actually had they, had, they had a student group that actually does a bunch of marine science there, and they yeah. actually got in the water and snorkeled, and, and they wow. bioblitzed the ocean while we were doing oh, our bioblitz. So, that's so much fun. Which was great. Um, but it was a pretty big adventure. Definitely one yeah. of the biggest ones I've gone on recently. Well, if you guys are planning a future one and you need some podcasters to, like, yeah. you know, oh, sure. blow you, it you, up. You have our email now. So. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> we can probably pay for hotels, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> well, the hope the hope from this trip was actually to, like, really plan, like, a bigger future expedition. Yeah. So there is a hope that we're going to go back next year or the year after and actually do, um, you know, more research, more bigger things with our scientists, but also a bigger bioblitz also. Yeah. That's so, so cool. So like we're 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 familiar with what a bioblitz is and how how it works mm-hmm. and stuff. Can you kind of break it down what from beginning to end what is a bioblitz? Yeah. How does it like go out there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I mean there's all different ways to do bioblitzes, but generally kind of the general definition of a bioblitz uh-huh. is like where you are working in a particular place, so you have kind of a boundary that you're working in and a kind of constricted amount of time, and you're trying to document as many species as you possibly can okay. in that area. And so way back in the day, bioblitzes were really scientific endeavors, like almost like all taxa inventories, where you get a bunch of scientists who mm-hmm. are experts in all the potential you know, groups that you might have yeah, in this anything area. anything that might be there. <laughs> exactly. You get your botanist, you get your ornithologist, you get your mammologist, all those folks to go out. Yeah. And they, on their own, go out and basically take themselves on a little trip. It's usually about 24 hours that you're working in the area, though, and they're recording everything that they see, usually on a piece of paper. Okay. And so um, when we started doing bioblitzes, it was developed with uh, a group called Nerds for Nature here in the Bay Area. (laughs) Um, It was an all-volunteer group, and they had recently started using iNaturalist and saw the power of, you know, all these people doing this sort of work together. And yeah. so they held what we're, we call now a grassroots bioblitz, the first ever grassroots bioblitz using iNaturalist, okay. where they got a bunch of folks together at a park in San Francisco just for the morning, basically. Like, they met at 9 a.m., and I think they were done at noon or 1 p.m. or something like yeah. that. But their goal was the exact same, like, to document as many species as they possibly could in that short amount of time, but this time using iNaturalist huh. and taking photos of everything that they were, saw. Were they Were they experts in, like, no. things that they were just... Random yeah. people that got together and decided that this is going to be a good idea. Exactly. Pictures of stuff Two and then pictures of yeah. stuff. put it online for people to figure out. Exactly. I mean, that's the great thing about INAT is that yeah. you don't actually need to know what it is you're taking a picture of. You just yeah. need to take a good enough picture yeah. that it can get identified, you know? So they kind of did the very first grassroots bioblitz. This being an all-volunteer group, though, um, they were really happy to start partnering with us, um, the Citizen Science Department, because we can basically get paid to 
organize and plan yeah. these sort of things yeah. and run these sort of events. And so we've been holding biobuses now for eight years. We've done over a hundred of them, you know, through the academy itself. But we've really kind of stayed true to that first grassroots model where we just get a whole bunch of people at one place. Usually it's a park that wants a species list or wants to do a bioblitz. Yeah. And um, we usually we try not to hold a bioblitz for like only the reason to hold a bioblitz. Like we really want the data to get used. Oh, okay. And yeah. so we, we partner with land managers um, or okay. resource managers all the time in yeah. these bioblitzes. Um, so yeah, we usually we get to a park at nine in the morning. The park really wants the data. They want to build a species list, or they have a super old species list that needs to get updated. And this is a really nice first step yeah. to you know building that new species list. And we just invite anyone who wants to come show up with iNaturalist. And usually from nine to noon, we buy a blitz, take pictures of everything we can, and then um, we usually do a little wrap up afterwards where we can see collectively. What did we all find? How many species did we find? How many observations did we make? Yeah, things like that. So, so do you guys put together like like a project on um, yeah. for, for once before you get to the site? You put put together a project, yes. and then that's how you do your wrap up at the end. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, Sinet huh. gives you those nice stats of gives you a leaderboard, so you can see who found the most stuff and who found the most species. Make it a competition. To- Some people are super into that, right? <laughs> that's why the City Nature Challenge works. Oh yeah. <laughs> but it also gives you stats about like yeah, like what was your the species you found the like most observations of, of particular species and yeah. you can see like a breakdown of like this is how many plant species you found and you know insects you found and ma- mammals you found and things like that as well so <laughs> making a project is something we always do as a way to kind of really see the collective work that we do together okay yeah so um we use the term a lot citizen science um can you just give us a, a brief idea of what citizen science is for folks that might not be familiar with it? Yeah, so, you know, different people are going to have different definitions of what they consider to be citizen science. Mm -hmm. For us, it's really just involving non-professional scientists in the scientific endeavor. Like, that's at the at the basic core. Yeah. You know, it doesn't that doesn't have to necessarily be that they're going out and answering a particular question. A lot of times with the work that we're doing with iNaturalist is monitoring. We're building this database of when and where species occur so that we can really start to pull out trends and big ideas and really start answering questions so about those. We can things. learn the questions we want to ask. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like you, that observation part is the first part of science, right? Like you gotta go out and look at stuff before you come up with questions. Um, and so for us it's we really try to do this always kind of at a, in a community sort of way. And so okay. it's involving non-professional scientists, but oftentimes we also have professional scientists out there with us too. We have land managers, park rangers out there with us also. Yeah. So it really is basically kind of getting everyone involved in this, in the scientific endeavor. That's cool. I, I've noticed a lot, like we'll have, um, I'll post a bunch of sightings on iNaturalist mm-hmm. and I, I, I don't post as many as I should. But I post a bunch, and occasionally I'll get like like I'll see, I'll post a bunch of like insects, and then I'll have like the same person will go through and boom 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 identify, and then yeah. I go and look at their profile, and they're like uh, an insect biologist from the University of Kentucky or something like that. Yeah, no, it's so like, great. I don't know how he suddenly is like, but he, he's going through. And yeah. Like, so you get professionals on there too totally. that are just totally. completely unrelated to anything that I'm doing or yeah. anything that you guys are doing. Yeah. They're like, I want to identify that stuff. Yeah, I know it's amazing. You know, you can you can imagine though it's such a large, huge database that can be used to answer big scientific questions yeah. that, you know, a lot of scientists once they learn about INAT, you know, they go and they find the group that they're interested in. They're like, all right, I'm I'm really interested in these observations. I'm yeah. going to go and identify them or help confirm identifications. Um, but you know, the great thing about INAT too is that it's also like amateur experts are out there doing it, like the birders of the world who yeah. are confirming all the bird observations on INAT. I think the <laughs> I do that when I'm bored. <laughs> yeah, I, they, I, they did a study years ago. It's probably even faster now. But the time to ID birds on iNaturalist once you post a picture mm-hmm. is about thirty seconds on average. I, yeah, I can see that. I yeah, yeah I, can, some, I almost all... never can get one that's not research grade already. Yeah, like I I go on there and I'll be like, all right, legit. Oh, 
Yep. As soon as as soon as I click on it, yeah. and the time it takes for it to load for me to click that, someone's already, someone's already yeah, I just go through it. and I'm like, like agree, agree, agree. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's great that like it's not just scientists that have to do yeah. it. All of us can be part of that identification process too, which is great. It's it is it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it really. Well, is. And, and it's great to know that the information that we're putting on there is actually useful because I know so many volunteers that get frustrated like if they feel like their time isn't being used wisely, yeah. and with this, I feel like you definitely know that it is because it's going to projects that are relevant around the world. And even, you know, if you just put data on there, some scientist 20 years from now would be like, oh, looking through historical data and, oh, I needed an observation of an osprey at this lake. Yeah. I, I didn't know that they've been here since th- yeah, exactly. that, that date totally. way back then. Yeah. yeah, you know, they did a little study in 2018 because research-grade observations go to GBIF, the Global Biodiversity Information Facility. Okay. okay. So GBIF basically is... Um, a giant database of species occurrence records. Mm-hmm. So it has research grade iNaturalist records. It has all like, well, all digitized museum specimens, you know, oh, so wow. like a bunch of historic records. It also okay. has all eBird records. Really? So basically it's a huge database of species huh. occurrence records. And so a lot of times when scientists are trying to answer big questions about species distributions or where things occurred in the past versus where they're being found now, they'll go yeah. to GBIF. Huh. And so you, uh, when you download data from GBIF, you get a little like, special like DOI that like identifies this is the data set that you that you downloaded. And so INAT just did a like quick poll last year of how many folks downloaded a data set from GBIF that got used in a scientific paper that included iNaturalist data. And it was something like 125 papers in 2018 at wow. least. Oh, man. Those are the ones that they could find. Like they know yeah. there's more out there for sure. They, they weren't properly cited. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they used the data. They just maybe, maybe didn't yeah. cite it well. Enough. You know, so it's like one of those things that you might actually never know. Like you might never like have the scientists actually contact you about your one observation, but there's a really good chance that observations you made have been downloaded in these huge data sets and have been definitely being used to answer questions. Huh. That's really powerful. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, so you mentioned the city nature challenge and, and competition and everything, yeah. and how that how that's involved with bio blitzes and stuff. What exactly is the city nature challenge, and how did it start? Right. So the city nature challenge is, I mean, at this point, it's a four day bio blitz style competition that oh. cities around the world can participate in. Yeah. So residents and and folks, visitors to cities can participate in. Um, it started back in 2016. It was the first ever Citizen Science Day. It was considered okay. back then kind of a national Citizen Science Day. It was in recognition that the White House had formally recognized citizen science as an important data source. Hmm. And it started okay. asking all other agencies to consider how they could use citizen science hmm. you know, in the work That's that cool. they do. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so to celebrate this, the um, Citizen Science Association and SciStarter, which is kind of a database of citizen science projects, decided to have this first ever Citizen Science Day to celebrate. And that was going to be April 16th that year, I think. And so they were asking people, like, hey, can you do something for Citizen Science Day? Like, anything, just so we can celebrate that, you know, this first ever Citizen Science Day. And so we heard about this announcement. We're just like, we should totally do something. (laughs) And we were talking to our colleague down at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County, Leela Higgins. And we've been working with them, the community science team down there, for years because um, we do really similar projects. We mm-hmm. both use iNaturalist. They're really focused on Los Angeles County. We've been doing a lot of work in the Bay Area, but we've never any- done anything really together, a project together. Okay. And so we said, hey, for Citizen Science Day, why don't we have a competition between San Francisco and Los Angeles? Yeah. 
and see who can make the most observations and find the most species, <laughs> you know, get the most people involved to yeah. really capitalize on the San Francisco-Los Angeles rivalry uh-huh. that already exists. Um, it's already huge, you know? Um, and so back then we're Just like... drive that divide wider. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so it was started off as an eight-day competition, which we, like, after that first year, we realized eight days was way too long to <laughs> maintain the stamina to do this sort of work. Yeah. But that's how it started, basically. It's San Francisco versus Los Angeles... City Nature Challenge, first ever. Um, that year, Los Angeles beat us soundly, unfortunately. <laughs> we were a little disappointed here in the Bay Area. But, you know, during that first year, we kept, we were, you know, teasing each other on social media and, like, taunting, you know. And so we kept having these folks in other cities who were like, what is this thing? Like, how can we do it? Like, is my city doing the City Nature Challenge? And so we decided in 2017 to start scaling it. And so in 2017, we opened it up to cities in the United States. But what it takes is, like, we need to have a local organizer in every city. It's not like yeah. we're, like, organizing New York City or anything, anything like that. Like it takes enough, so much work. Seriously, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it takes enough work for us to organize our own cities. Um, yeah. And so we really wanted to make sure that cities had their own local organizers, yeah. that we could teach them the skills, we could teach them about how to use our naturalist and how to hold bio blitzes and all those sorts of things. Um, but then someone is on the ground there who's organizing their particular city. So that first year, um, 2017, we had 16 cities in okay. the U.S. participate. And then after that, we're just like, well, what do we scale after the U.S.? Like, it seems a little arbitrary to say, like, just North America or, like, yeah. just the Western Hemisphere. So, like, all right, opening up to anybody. The world. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> San Francisco versus California, Los Angeles, United States, then the world. Um, and so, yeah, 2018, we had 68 cities around the world right. participate. And then this last year in 2019, we had about 150 cities oh, man. around wow. the world participate. And by the last two years, we've really pared it down into a four-day competition. You know, starts, like, midnight your time on Friday morning it goes all the way through basically till you know 11 59 and 59 seconds yeah. monday your time right. um so four days to go up and make observations um and really like see what what can each city find and so it's really um a lot of people really love the competition part of it <laughs> like competition drives a lot of it but a lot yeah. of people also really love the collaboration like knowing that other people around the whole world are doing this with you at the exact same time um it's pretty great in 2019 we we made about a million observations Jeez. in four oh, days um, and about 36,000 people around the world participated, wow. which is great. Yeah. And so we're just now starting to organize for um, 2020. And it's looking yeah. maybe like about 300 cities oh this year. Oh, my gosh. Or, yeah, this coming so, year. Did you think that was going to happen? No. I mean, <laughs> literally, we started off with two cities. Like, yeah. <laughs> you got that first email from one other city, and you're like, oh, somebody else is so, paying attention. Somebody yeah. wants to do this? Someone else wants to do this, too? All right. You know, but it's still, like, we're still doing the same thing. We still have to find a local organizer in every city, and that's really what it takes. Is like, we really stay true to this grassroots organizing. We try to give people the the skills and the resources that they need yeah. to organize their city. Like, it, I mean, it takes a ton of work. We have monthly meetings. Our meetings now have gone from like one phone call a month to three phone calls on three days at three different times to accommodate all the time zones around the world <laughs> to give everyone the same information. You know, this year now we're also looking for someone who can deliver it in Spanish also because so oh. many of our cities now are Spanish-speaking cities. That's amazing. And a lot of our organizers don't speak English. Um, so yeah, it, it does take a ton of work, but it still, it really comes down to that local organizer who's willing to take it on in their city yeah. and make those meetings and, you know, learn how to use the platform, willing to hold events, willing to promote it. And then they make it happen in their own city. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Incredible. Um, so have you guys like, so you said like a million observations in 2019, has there been, is there anything particularly noteworthy that you're aware of that has been found out specifically yeah. because of the city nature challenge? 
Yeah, for sure. You know, it's one of those things that I'm sure there's actually quite a few noteworthy things that are, <laughs> are being made up, you know, getting observations of that it just is going to take some time to go through and actually identify all those things. But yeah. we know for sure, um, you know, we're definitely recording uh, new records of things in places that they weren't known before. Oh, wow. You know, like a, some, a species that's showing up at a country that we didn't know it was there huh. or like a species showing up in a county that we didn't know was there. Um, definitely we're tracking some pretty amazing endangered species that we're finding, you know, things that had never been recorded on a naturalist before. We had a beautiful orchid this last year found in Colombia, I want to say, that had never been recorded on a naturalist. Was, wow. You know, it was huh. extremely rare, extremely endangered. Um here in the Bay Area, we have a great example from this last City Nature Challenge. It was actually at a bioblitz that we were helping to run in San Mateo County. Yeah. And one of the – it's actually one of the co-organizers of this bioblitz who works for the Sequoia Audubon Society. She was out there leading her group, and she looked under a log, and, you know, there were a bunch of um, terrestrial isopods, you know, like roly-polies and wood lice and things like yeah, that. Yeah. So she was taking pictures of them. And she took a picture of one, and she assumed it was, like, the common one and uploaded it as, like, you know, the common woodlouse or something like that. Um, and someone saw it and was just like, hey, wait a second. Like, I actually think this is the species that was described from the Bay Area in the 1930s, but has never been seen in the Bay Area since. Really? Like, there was a resurvey in the 90s of, like, all of the terrestrial isopod species of the Bay Area. Yeah. And they couldn't find it in the Bay Area at all. They had been seen in, like, Southern California, but, but they couldn't find it in the Bay Area oh anymore. Gosh. And it just so happened huh. that the picture that she took was that species. That's crazy. Yeah, that had been recorded now for like 80-something years in the Bay Area. <laughs> you know, and I I'm, I guarantee there's those stories from all, the, you know, from, from every cities. Single, yeah, 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 I'm sure every city has something cool and unusual. Like, it really just takes people going through and really finding those and identifying those yeah. um, to pick up those stories. That's crazy. Well, yeah. And I'm, I'm sure it helps that it's a big, it's a four-day big event. And if you're a citizen scientist, you're into it looking at, looking at that, but then, like, people that are professional scientists are aware that these events are happening. Yep. So I'm sure a lot of them, like, ornithologists and isopodologists and, <laughs> yeah. and all, all the different ologists are probably, like, they're probably, like, just r- rubbing their hands together so excited to see what pops out What's of these. What's going to happen? And yeah. they're, they're scrolling through. They've organized it by insects, and they're looking through the insects and seeing what, what pops up or whatever. Yeah, you know, and one of the things that some of our cities have started doing, like, because we're making so many observations... Um, the last couple of years, we've decided to give like a week. We call it like the identification period. To And basically, we give everybody a week before we announce the results so that, one, people can upload all their observations if they didn't have a time, you know, if they're out there taking pictures with their big camera and they need yeah. t- t- time to sit down at their laptop and take pic- and upload all those observations. But then also to give cities time to actually go through all those and observations do and do some identification. So we never announce the results like at the end of those four days. We give everybody a week. Okay. And so a lot of cities now are holding what we call ID parties, mm-hmm. where they get a whole bunch of people together, you know, experts and amateur experts and people who yeah. are just like there with, you know, field guides to sit down with their laptops and go through as many observations as they can from their city and try to get them identified down to species. Because, you know, like one of the, you know, we don't just award the most observations. We also um, recognize the city that found the most species and the city that had the most people participate. Yeah. And so to increase your species number, you've got to take those like plant observations yeah. <laughs> or insect observations and try to get them as close as you can to species ah, got it. to up your species number. So a lot of cities now are taking the time to really try to dig into their observations and get them identified. Man. <laughs> yeah. It takes a ton of work. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, so, I couldn't imagine that much amount of work 
that a professional scientist would have to do to get that same amount of information. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Like, it's pretty amazing. A ton of so many grad yeah. students. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, so you said there's 300 or so cities participating in 2020. So what about all the other people that aren't in one of, don't live in one of those cities? Because I know we don't live in one of those cities. Mm-hmm. Um, what, how can they participate? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, I think, a lot of different ways that you could take part in this. Like, one is just the fact that there's so many people around the world doing this all at the same time that I don't think people should feel limited if their city is not mm-hmm. actually an official part of the City Nature Challenge, that it's great. Like, go out and document biodiversity in your own city, you know, during that same time. Be part of this huge movement. You know, we always produce that week as the biggest week ever on iNaturalist every single year. We just keep breaking the record each year. <laughs> so be part of that. You know, go out and, and document species in your own city, yeah. um, even if your city is not participating. Which maybe is totally maybe they fine. will participate the next right. year. Right. Well, and also, I was going to say, it's another thing. Like, all it takes to have a city participate is someone in that city who contacts us and says, I'm willing to organize my city. You know, and a lot of times it's people who work at museums or universities or things like that. But yeah. we also have people who do it totally on their, like they volunteer their time. They, their job has nothing to do with this and they yeah. on their own time organize their city. Wow. And so um, I think a lot of folks in 2020, if your city is not participating, you could maybe start reaching out to, you know, your local natural history museum or your local, you know, university or any or local zoo and aquarium. All those sort of folks yeah. um, might have staff that want to, that could dedicate some time to this. Especially if they have, like, a community outreach coordinator. Yeah. Exactly. And you'll see if they'll be willing to take part in it in 2021. We will, like, there is a sign-up on the website already for people who are interested in organizing for 2021. Yeah. So you might as well jump in and, like, you know, see if you can get someone signed up. And then the third way that people can participate, even if your city is not doing it, is helping with that identification process. Mm-hmm. Um, because we flood iNaturalist with so many observations, mm-hmm. we get this big lag time between... Uploading observations and the time to get get them identified. So, so that bird number gets a lot bigger. Yeah, 30 seconds. <laughs> it's not 30 seconds. I'm sure the birds the are still the fastest, though. Like, those birds are going to get identified so quickly. But there is this big lag that happens, the backlog, because of the City Nature Challenge. So, you know, if you have any expertise or if you can go through the unknown observations and say yeah. this is a plant and this is a bird and this is an insect. At least get it into one bucket So somewhere. the people who know yeah. their plants and their birds and their insects can find them, that's hugely useful as well. Huh. So off the top of your head, you might not know this, um, <laughs> but what's the smallest city that participates? Or that, is, that you know, has participated, to participate? yeah. Yeah, so I think this this last year, I don't have the population and area yet of, of the 2020 cities, but this last year I think the smallest city had a little over 4,000 Oh, okay. For their population. Okay. And area was less than 500 square kilometers. Okay. Um, I think it was Tena in Ecuador who actually was one of the almost, uh, they produced some of the most observations this last year. Really? Yeah, I think they had, I think they were our smallest population and, and then made, they weren't the winners, but were in you know the top five for that's amazing. That's insane. <laughs> well, because yeah. what they did is that there happens to be a university in this little tiny, it's a right. considered the gateway to the Amazon in, in Ecuador. Oh, okay. So it's already a very biodiverse place. Yeah. They have a university there and um, the university canceled classes on Friday and Monday and oh. told all their students to go make observations for the City Nature Challenge. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. Totally worth it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, so aside from iNaturalist and City Nature Challenge, um, you're working, you've, you've been working on a project, the Snapshot California Coast. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I love the City Nature Challenge. I love the fact that it engages people around the world in documenting their own 
local biodiversity and especially like urban biodiversity, which is already under threats from, uh-huh. you know, habitat loss and invasive species and things like that. But I personally am not an urban ecologist. I'm a marine biologist. All right. And I'm a marine biologist specifically of tide pools on the California coast is really my specialty. And it just so <laughs> happens. very niche. Exactly. And it just so <laughs> happens that my co-director is also a marine biologist. She's a nudibranch taxolo- taxonomist. Oh, that's cool. Really? So she studies sea Oh, nudibranchs are so cool. Oh, they're amazing. <laughs> Believe me, I have found a deep love for nudibranchs after, you know, from working with her. Um, and so when we were first starting our citizen science program, we really wanted to have something that was taking place in the tide pools, you know, as a way, it's like really the way that people interface with the ocean. Not mm-hmm. everyone's a scuba diver, not everyone gets to go out on boats, but you yeah. can go to your beach, you can go to your tide pools, and you can really kind of get that like connection to the marine environment. And so when we started our citizen science program, we really wanted to have a tide pool like component to it. So we've been doing some long-term monitoring at a site just south of San Francisco, and we've been doing that now for about eight years. Um, and it's great, super dedicated group of volunteers. It is like now the most well-studied site for biodiversity of any rocky intertidal site on the California really? coast, which is great. Um, but California, um, you know, in this last decade, implemented a series of state marine protected areas. Okay. So California has um, up and down the entire coast, like all within state waters, mm-hmm. a whole bunch of marine protected areas. Wow. And along with that comes this thing that we call the Marine Protected Area Collaborative Network, where every county basically has a collaborative of folks that do education and research and um, yeah. enforcement in their marine protected areas. Okay. And they're kind of working together to talk about, like, how can we you know, do more work in our marine protected areas? And so we were actually approached by a group who's super interested in this California um, MPA network. And they said, hey, like, you guys have been doing you know, citizen science monitoring at one site, you also, you guys also do bio blitzes all throughout the Bay Area. Yeah. You know, is there any way we can basically put those together and really think about a way that we can scale this work along the entire California coast so we can actually, as a MPA network, do something all together as yeah. a network. And so that's how Snapchat Cal Coast was born, which is basically kind of similar to the City Nature Challenge. It's a little longer. It's usually one to two weeks in the summer every June. Okay. But we work with those collaboratives up and down the coast of California. We've taught them how to use iNaturalist. We've taught them how to hold bio blitzes. We send them, you know, postcards and ways to promote the city, the snapshot Cal coast. But then during that two week period, we basically try to get as many people as we can out to the California coast to document coastal biodiversity. So okay. to help us really understand what's going on inside of our marine protected areas, outside of our marine protected areas, and also like where our species actually being found along the coast and how is that changing? on a year-to-year basis. And the super cool thing is, is just this last year, the state of California is now funding this program. Wow. And in particular, um, it's the Ocean Protection Council um, who's funding this. And in particular, they've actually helped us, um, they funded a postdoc position with us, like a research scientist who's now actually taking those data because now that we've been doing, we've been doing Snapchat Calcos as long as we've been doing the City Nature Challenge. So this year will be the fifth year. (laughs) Um, And the state of California, the Ocean Protection Council, really wants to know can we use these data that you guys are generating to actually manage our marine protected areas? Hmm. Like, can we transform this iNaturalist data into management and policy? And so this research scientist that they're funding now is going in, really looking at those data, trying to combine it with other environmental data out there in the ocean to really let the state know, like, this is how you can best take advantage of these data to understand your marine protected areas, to better manage them. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really (laughs) great. And so, um, yeah, so this this year it's going to be in June – 
Mm-hmm. First part of June again. You know, it's the like worst time to be at the beach. <laughs> right, yeah. seriously. It is a little tough because the low tides are super early in the morning, but it, oh, is, yeah, yeah. it is the time that has um, like the best, like a, a really long series of really incredible low tides, like some of the lowest low tides of the whole year, yeah. which is why we do it always in the beginning of June. Um, they just happen to be kind of early in the morning. <laughs> so um, I know there's marine protected areas, marine reserves across the world. Is there any other program that, or any other country that has similar programs, or is this like a pilot that you guys are working with yeah you know there isn't any place like california that has this like network of marine protected areas you know you can think of like national national um marine protected areas like our national marine sanctuaries and things like that which are much Mm -hmm. larger but there's you know fewer of them and they're not managed as a network um there is a program in australia called red map that works to monitor coastal and ocean biodiversity as well um i don't think it's just focused on marine protected areas um, I know that there is a hope that a lot of places are looking to California as a model yeah. for, like, how can we actually think about managing these things as a network, you yeah. know, to really impact the whole coastline. Um, and hopefully, as other either states or countries sort of adopt this model, they can also hopefully adopt some citizen science that goes along with it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because we're, we're in Oregon, mm-hmm. and we just in, um, instituted marine reserves just a couple of years ago, so they're mm-hmm. fairly young. And they're doing bio blitzes and things like that, but that information is still is will be going to you know state legislature soon to say whether or not we should keep the marine reserves whether they're useful whether they should you know shrink them or change Mm -hmm. them or whether we should grow them right right. we're still like in the beginning stages so it's exciting to hear that how supportive the state is yeah in this program and how um yeah, involved they are in making sure it's successful. Yeah, you know, and, and the state really is interested in adaptive management of these MPAs. So they're, they're coming up for a review in 2022 okay. um, of these MPAs. And so that's another big reason why we want to look at these data right now. Because um, they might do the same thing. They might look at these data and say, like, actually, we should move this marine protected area because we're not getting the effects that we want. Or, like, we should make this one bigger. Or, like, this yeah. one doesn't seem to be doing anything. So they're also really interested in this adaptive management, but they're a little farther along in the process. Yeah. Interestingly, we have talked to folks up in Oregon about, you know, can we actually maybe think about Snapshot West Coast instead of just yeah, Snapshot Cal yeah. Coast? <laughs> and so we know we've talked to some folks in Oregon about their biolits, and so far we haven't aligned them to happen at the same time. But oh, I know yeah. that there is hopefully down the line some um, push to maybe have more more of these biolits happen, you know, with, in conjunction with each other so we can really get a picture of West Coast biodiversity. Not, not just... Cal- even Not though California that. is probably a little more than half of the entire <laughs> right, exactly. West Coast, but you get the rest of the right, other half. Right, let's go all the way up to Alaska. <laughs> yeah, yeah there we go. Canada's always game to do things. Right, exactly. <laughs> they'll, they'll always say yes. They, they don't. They don't want to. They don't want to muddy the waters. Yeah, such nice folks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, are there any upcoming things like this project that are still in the works that we should be watching out for? Well, you know, so. City Nature Challenge and Snapshot Health Coast right now do take up most of our time. Um, <laughs> I imagine so. <laughs> we do a lot of work, um, you know, just to make those two happen. We are really interested and in, we're just kind of in the very beginning stages of thinking about, like, how can we take what we do with Snapshot Health Coast as a model and actually apply it to other California habitats as well? You know, so this is something that... Um, we're really interested in talking to the state more about since mm-hmm. the state is already funding the coastal work. Uh, California recently uh, came out with a California biodiversity initiative with the hopes of, you know, really understanding the biodiversity in California, understanding how to better protect it, have residents 
but are connected to their biodiversity as well. Yeah. Um, where we really feel like we kind of fit into that niche pretty nicely. But again, this is like really just released recently. Um, although Governor Brown last year declared the first ever California Biodiversity Day, which is awesome. And so this we actually just celebrated the second California Biodiversity Day. It's on September 7th. All right. And so we're really trying to think about like how can we use Snapchat Calcos as a model and really talk to the state about, you know, you're interested in resurveying your biodiversity. You want to get people better connected to, to the state's biodiversity. How can we work together to really think about running campaigns or holding big events like this yeah. to get, you know, more data in other parts of the state? Huh. So what is, what exactly is the Biodiversity Day? Like, what is, what is that... So what, it, what, what was the vision behind it, I guess? Yeah, so I mean, it, it or, came. If you know. <laughs> right, I know, I know a little bit about it. So it came when, when this when this California Biodiversity Initiative was basically kind of revealed. Like they they wrote it, they finally like published it and put it out there, um, which is basically kind of talking about the unique biodiversity in California, since we are a biodiversity hotspot, which also means that our biodiversity is under threat as well. Yeah. Um, so there really was this push about. Um, you know, not only thinking about like what's the future of California in the face of climate change, to also think about like the threat to biodiversity as well. Okay. And so Governor Brown, with the release of this initiative, also declared September seventh the first ever California Biodiversity Day. And I think that first day it was or that first year it was more just kind of a symbol. Today's California Biodiversity Day. Yeah. But um, our new governor, Governor Newsom, um, is also very interested in biodiversity as well. Oh, and good. so the hope. Um, with this last biodiversity day, they're like, well, let's let's do something. You know, let's yeah. have something happen for biodiversity yeah. day. Um, and so, not just recognize exactly, not just say it's biodiversity day, <laughs> yeah. but what actually do we do? Yeah. And so, uh, they actually have someone now on Fish and Wildlife who's kind of in charge of biodiversity day, and she contacted us, and she's like, mm-hmm. you guys clearly are the folks that know about documenting biodiversity <laughs> in California. You know, can we work together to to think about California biodiversity day? So this last year, um, I mean, just a couple weeks ago, we had. 10 bio, blood, 10 bio blitzes throughout the state, mostly okay. held by state parks and fish and wildlife, oh, that's um, awesome. you know, wildlife areas mm-hmm. to go out and, and document their biodiversity and get more people connected. And the hope, though, is that, you know, next year, maybe it's like we have a bio blitz in every single county of California, yeah. or we have 100 bio blitzes happen on that day. So wow. it's really thinking about how can we scale that to really think about, you know, what are California's goals around around this day? You know, is it, yeah. is it the number of people that are out there? Is it they want to get so many observations or document so many species? Mm-hmm. So we're really interested in continuing these conversations to see, you know, what can we actually do together as a state on Biodiversity Day? Yeah, that's so exciting that, yeah. like, people are coming to you guys to yeah. say, hey, we need your help with this sort of thing. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's not the way things have always been. <laughs> it's very true. Super true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so we're, we're happy that we're kind of getting recognized as, like, this leader. The, the go-to for, yeah. for, for citizen science Animals, research. these guys. <laughs> right. If you want to do biodiversity citizen science, come talk to us. Yeah. That's awesome. So do you guys have resources for people in other places just looking to do, like, bioblitzes? Like, do you have, like... Um, a PDF somewhere that suggests like this is how we do a bioblitz or like something for teachers maybe mm-hmm. that can use this sort of information in their classrooms? Yeah, so we've built a few things. Um, in conjunction with our education department a few years ago, we put together a citizen science toolkit and it's about cool. how to teach science through citizen science. Oh, okay. okay. And so anyone, if you search the Cal Academy website and just put in citizen science toolkit, you can find that. And that's really geared towards classroom educators um, who are doing some sort of kind of formal education around science, but thinking about how can you kind of teach the whole process of science mm-hmm. through using a citizen science project. And we get wow. lots of different examples of different projects you could use and, and things like that as well. Um, we do also have guides on, on holding bioblitzes. Some of that stuff is actually posted on iNaturalist. iNaturalist has a whole page around bioblitzes and things like that as well. This last year, um, we partnered with 
HHMI, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which seems like a strange partner for this sort of work. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they have um, a place called Tangled Bank, Tangled Bank Studios that produces films. Okay. And this last year, they released a film called Backyard Wilderness, which is a story of a girl in New York, like upstate New York, who was um, really focusing on the biodiversity of her own backyard. Hmm. And so they told, they came to us and they said, hey, we're about to release this film. We'd love to have like bio blitzes, like be something that people can do with this film. Like we want to partner with libraries. We They made these little exhibits that go in libraries, but they said we also want these libraries to hold bio blitzes or anyone who wants to to hold bio blitzes. So we actually developed a bio blitz guide with them right. also. So if you, you know, Google backyard wilderness, you can come up, they actually have a bunch of free, um, they have like educator resources. They have our bio blitz guide. They have a guide for like parents to explore your backyard with your kids, huh. um, things like that as well. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Making an impact on the younger people. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Got to get them young. Yeah. So, is there is there anything else you want to tell us about yourself or the California Academy of Sciences or I mean, anything? It's a, it's a cool place. <laughs> you come come visit. You know, <laughs> our, our our museum out there in Golden Gate Park is a pretty fun spot. You know, yeah. the whole museum focuses on biodiversity, as most natural history museums do, which is kind of why we have a citizen science program like this that runs yeah. out of it. Um, and the cool thing is that I guess we didn't really talk about too much is that. Um, a lot of folks don't really know what the science of natural history museums is. Like, what what do scientists who work in natural history museums do? A lot of people come to the academy and they mm-hmm. see our the public floor and they see our exhibits that are about biodiversity. A lot of folks don't even know that we have a research division at the academy. That there's a whole basement huh. full of exactly, skins. and we literally we're, we are in the basement. <laughs> um, it's a very nice basement though, lots of windows, which is oh, great. Um, but yeah, that we have this whole mm-hmm. research division of which the citizen science department is a part of. And so when we designed our citizen science program, we really wanted to give people that experience of like, what does it mean to be a scientist at a natural history museum? What is the science of natural history? Which is that our scientists, they travel all over the world. They go and they document biodiversity. You know, they're curious. They're observing really well. They go to a place where they, you know, with the group of organisms that they know best, they're hoping to discover new ones. So they discover new species. They document when and where species occur around the world. When they collect a specimen, which of which we have 48 million of them at the Academy. (laughs) But a specimen, basically, I mean, it's a species occurrence record. It's this species occurred here on this day. My evidence is the specimen right here. And so when we started our citizen science program, we wanted to give people that same experience of going out and being curious and documenting biodiversity. What yeah. we didn't want people to do was to mail us specimens from everywhere <laughs> in the world. Um, and so luckily we found iNaturalist as a great platform because when you take that picture with iNaturalist, it records your location, it records mm-hmm. the date, we know who you are, your evidence is your photograph. And so it's literally the same same information that a museum specimen has. Yeah. But you're just taking a photograph as your evidence it's as just, well. Just a little bit less because you can't open up the specimen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, yeah. You, know, you don't you don't have it. You don't have it sitting <laughs> in a jar with alcohol yeah, exactly. or, or things like that. But you, the evidence but pretty is pretty much pretty much everything that you want from that observation is there. Is this, there. Yeah. this species occurred here on this day, and here's my proof. I took a picture of it. You know, <laughs> and so that's really why we do this work that we do is to give people that same experience of you know what it is. What what does it mean to do science? The science of natural history. Like yeah. what is it? mean to go out and discover and document species and we're trying to give people that exact same experience through this do you have any advice for um people who are looking to go into a career similar as yours like with citizen science or you know a community outreach Mm -hmm. um is there like a tip that you can give people that are looking to do that well i mean luckily these jobs are becoming more and more common as more and more folks are adopting citizen science or community science as something that they want their organization to do or as a way to 
you know, meet the public and, and do this sort of like connecting people to nature and, mm-hmm. you know, but teaching people about biodiversity and also then collecting data as well. You know, so I really think that it, you don't have to be a scientist to do this work. Um, you also don't have to be just solely an educator. It really helps to kind of have a nice background of those, of both of those things, mm-hmm. you know, so to have, make sure that you kind of have a nice scientific background and have yeah. done some education or, you know, have, uh, you know, have a great education background, but have also done some science too, you know, yeah. like that I think really helps more than anything. Cause then you can really explain like not only, you know, engage people and get them excited about understanding biodiversity, but why is it important? Like, how are these data going to be used in the future? How have they been used? You know, like what is this, the science of doing this sort of work? So. Okay, so basically SciComm. Yeah, exactly. So science communication, if you, if you got that, then you can kind of start worming your way yeah, you know, towards a, that sort of career. Yeah, and a lot of places too, you know, they already have the scientists in place and they're looking for someone who can like translate that information and yeah. bring it out to the public and teach people how to do it as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think there's a whole range of skills that you could have and do citizen science yeah. or run a citizen science program, but it's definitely in that spectrum of like science to education, science education, science communication, yeah. you Just know, somewhere in there. In there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's awesome. Thank yeah. you so much of course. for joining us. Yeah, um, thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, we learned so much. And we I'm sure there are so many other resources that we're going to have to add on our show notes. <laughs> no problem. Um, yeah, I mean, this is just a great conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for guys coming and talking to me. So thank you so much, Allison, for sitting down with us. I mean, inviting us over to your house, I guess. <laughs> yeah, right. So, to play with your cute puppy. Yeah, to play with your puppy and to, to talk with us all about uh, the City Nature Challenge and iNaturalist and all the all the fun things that the California Academy of Sciences is doing. I know, there's so much. Even Seriously. Even just in California, too. Like, I didn't even realize. Like, of course, the California Academy of Sciences, so they're going to be, like, focusing on California, but mm-hmm. they do so much worldwide. And then to also do so much in California itself. Like, he's guy's got to be busy. Seriously. She probably doesn't have any time to sleep. <laughs> um, and go to tide pools. Yeah. How, how does she have time to go to tide pools? <laughs> so thank you so much, Allison. And um, like I mentioned before the interview, we do have a brief statement that she's given us about the changes to the 2020 year due to COVID-19, which we said we weren't going to really talk about. Um, but we, but we kind of have to just a little bit. Yeah. Um, so anyways, uh, this is what she says is, are some of the changes and the, the concept going forward this year. Yeah. So the email that we got from her, um, I'm probably going to screw up, um, tenses and stuff. Cause I think we synthesized this and then retyped it or something. I don't know, but, um, I'll go ahead and read what I have. Um, they've asked the organizers to follow their local government's requirements and cancel or limit in-person events if needed and to do what's best for them and their community. The CNC hasn't been canceled, but instead focuses this year on looking for nature that's inside your own house and backyard. They want to encourage folks who are not on lockdown to go for walks and hikes on their own with their family or or just to find nature in their area. Time outside in nature is calming and reduces overall stress. This year's CNC is no longer a competition, we want to embrace the collaborative aspect of the CNC this year and the healing power of nature to allow people to document their biodiversity in whatever way they can. For cities still able to hold events, we've offered guidelines like limiting registration, keeping the whole event outside, practicing social distancing during the event, making sure there are places to wash hands, everyone keeping their gear to themselves, no sharing no sharing food, etc. She emphasizes that there are not they are not experts or virologists, though 
So again, they're asking everyone to refer to their local government's recommendations. And they realize that this year's CNC will be drastically reduced this year, but for those folks who can still be out in nature, even on their own, knowing, hopefully knowing that tens of thousands of people around the world are also out documenting their local biodiversity in whatever way they can and taking solace in nature, that will feel uplifting and that we're still doing something useful and productive as a global community. I think that's wonderful. That's a lot like what we're doing with the women in step and the global yeah, big day. You exactly. Know? What little you can do, you're just trying to do and enjoy it. Yeah. So thank you um, to Allison and the California Academy of Sciences and everybody doing the City Nature Challenge. We've participated in it in the past and it's always really exciting to see all the um, all the little hot spots light up, you know, as people are submitting I, things. I also like to look like the week afterwards or like a couple months afterwards, look back to the total data that's been submitted to, um, iNaturalist and see that monster spike <laughs> in data the, of, of observations followed immediately by a monster spike in identifications, which is just like super cool to see. It's like, oh, well, and, and it's a general trend upwards over time anyways, but then every single time you get to the City Nature Challenge, that those four days just boom is monster spike of people like heavily getting into posting observations and then going through and identifying things over the next couple days. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. So thank you, Allison, and thank all of you guys for listening. Um, just uh, last little tidbit. Uh, we did, you know, in the past episodes, we've announced what we're going to be participating in in the future. Um, let's, let's participate what we will not be participating in. <laughs> announce what we will not be participating in. So this year you will not see us at Pacific City Birds and Blues, the Great Texas Birding Classic, Biggest Weekend Birding, nor the Indiana Dunes Birding Festival. So Mo um, Mostly because they postponed all of those events. Yeah, so... And, you know, give a little love to those folks, too, because it's so difficult to put on an event, have your, you know, heart and soul into it, and then have to cancel it. Right. Of course, you know, worldwide, everybody is dealing with this exact same thing. It's it's bigger than just birding, but it's it's also heartbreaking, a big event like something like Biggest Week in Birding, where... They put so many hours yeah. and so or much... Or Texas Birding Classic, or any of these events. People have put days and weeks and months and sometimes an entire year of time into it just to have it snatched out from below them. So, yeah. And so, like we said, you know, we had a couple of people reach out to us and that really meant a lot, you know, do the same thing, reach out to other people. It has just been a super tough couple of weeks and, um, we hope you all are happy and healthy and we'll see you on the other side. Yeah. We'll, we'll see y'all soon. Um, and thank you guys all for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and or learned something. Please, please, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Music, Stitcher, anywhere else you listen to us. Even if you're going to rate us low, give us an explanation. Like, we want to know what we can do better. I know. We had a couple threes, and it's yeah. like, okay. I, but with no, so, with, are, so we're just okay, then? We're, we're, we're okay, but there's no explanation as to what we can improve. So g give some comments on there, too. Give, give a review, not just a rating. Um, if you'd like to connect with us on the socials, you can follow us at Hannah Goes Birding and Eric Goes Birding. Hannah with an H, Eric with a K. On Instagram. And on our Facebook page, Hannah and Eric Go Birding. You can follow us on Twitter at We Go Birding. And uh, you can email us at Hannah and Eric Go Birding at gmail.com. And you can also check out our website. At GoBirdingPodcast.com. Um, tell us what you like. Tell us what you hated. Share us with your friends. And most importantly, stay healthy. Stay healthy.